All right, we are in a series called Making Disciples. Last week I introduced the series and we looked at the Great Commission, the directive to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus taught his disciples. So we looked at the content of discipleship and how it's organized in multiple forms, passed down relationally, parent to child, uh, discipler to disciple. We focused on the idea of home for the discipleship of children and the congregation for the transformation of converts and the reformation of believers who are not well catechized or require uh, remediation. And then at the end, I concluded with the idea that human beings are easy to forget what they have learned. Uh, we've all looked at notes that we took in um, college and said, I don't remember taking these notes. I don't remember ever hearing this material. Uh, and at some point you were tested on it, right? So it was there. Uh, and God knows that. So he told Israel, uh, one of the reminders was to use the tzitzit to wear those uh, uh, fringes on their, um, their garments to remind them. Many Christians wear crosses to remind them. Uh, we look at biblical texts to remind ourselves. Uh, the rituals of the holy days remind us the the rites of passage remind us all of those things are part of that. And so in this series, I want us to remember uh, this content of discipleship. Now, there are handouts. I hope you've got those. Uh, they look like this on one side. And they look like this on the other side. One a tree and one a building. Um, they will be helpful. Uh, I know that you can't see all of the uh, words on the left side of the building one. Because there are trees in the way. Uh, I told those trees to go away. They did on my computer. But the printer put them back. Um, and so I don't quite know what i got to do about that. Uh, the uh, computer and the printer didn't talk to each other. But I'll get that fixed. But it, it'll give you something uh, to take a look at. These two uh, metaphors, the building and the tree, are really actually cover the same stuff. And if you look at the bottom of the building one, you will see grace at the bottom. That's where we're starting. And if you look at the tree one, you can't quite pick it up. But right at the bottom, uh, it says grace. And there should be a taproot there because that's really uh, the foundation of this. Uh, so it will help you as we talk about these things to see them in relationship to each other. So... Um, the reason that we do both a living beat thing and a, and a temple is that the Bible uses both uh, um, agricultural terms and it uses temple and building terms uh, to refer to uh, spiritual truth. So today we're going to look at the subflooring, the, the foundation of the building and the taproot of the tree. And that is the, the idea of grace. Uh, so we're going to begin with a very uh, odd text. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9. Uh, there are a lot of verses that everybody knows about grace. And grace gets used a lot. This is always the verse that I go to first when, it's, when I talk to people about grace. So in chapter 13 of Hebrews verse 9, uh, it says these words. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, 
not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Then talks about an altar that we have that those who serve the temple or the tabernacle have no right to eat. Really a cryptic verse for most people. Uh, But let me try to explain this. In a text where the writer is speaking primarily to Jewish believers and trying to get them to press on in the faith, and explaining the relationship of the New Covenant with all of Judaism, uh, and trying to talk about the relationship of the superiority of Moses of Jesus over Moses, not to put Moses down, but just to expand beyond that. Uh, in all of that context, he says these interesting words. Don't get all lost in all the doctrines. Don't get tied up in these things. Because it's important for the heart to be established and strengthened. The the word there means both of those. By grace. And not by foods. Foods. Well, the foods are related to the sacrifices. And the foods are related to the kosher laws. This would be everyday life of Judaism. And he's saying these are important. But they're not as important as understanding the concept of God's grace. Now, most uh, Christians have the idea that grace is a New Testament doctrine. That's absolutely false. It's a biblical doctrine found throughout the, the scriptures. And I'm going to try to show that to you today. But I want to uh, talk a little bit about this discipleship content first. Discipleship is a learning system. To be a disciple is to learn a way of life from another. Parents, pastors, teachers, those people who know how to live life, teach that way of life to the children and to the converts so that they may learn how to live that way of life and then teach that to their children and their converts. And then their children and their converts. In other words, this passing on of the way of life, a culture, a faith, if you will, is more than just saying the magic words and being saved. Discipleship is really what this faith is about. And so we have to learn knowledge, we have to learn skills, and we have to learn values that are part of that way of life. Now, the learning of something is stressful. And in the the idea of that stress... If a parent is overbearing, or if a pastor is overbearing, or a discipler is overbearing, a teacher, a professor is overbearing, a student or a disciple doesn't learn well. If they are impossible to please, they just give up. And they just say, I can't learn this stuff, I'm stupid, or it's boring, or I don't care about it, and they just shut down. Or, if the Uh, instructor is uh, demanding in the sense that they think that they're going to be accepted or rejected by the teacher or the parent based on their performance, they will learn how to perform. They will not learn. They will simply learn to give the appearance of learning. They will say the words that they think you want to hear, not what they think is the case. So, the Bible taught warns fathers about these things in the roles between fathers and children. It's 
also taught in the relationship of disciplers and disciples. So it's important that we not become geared to believing that it is our learning that enamors another person or makes another person pleased with us. Uh, The scripture doesn't say that God is pleased by obedience. It says he's pleased by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now that's important. I'm going to talk more about that next week when I talk about faith, hope, and love. But today I want to really zero in on this idea of grace. Of grace. Grease. I always knew I was going to do that. Because grease is the word, right? So, but we're talking about grace. Now, the Hebrew word for grace is the word chen. And that word is associated with the Greek word charis, which we get charismatic or charis, that idea of grace, uh, grace gifts. Uh, these words have a meaning that means to show favor to someone, to help someone, to be merciful to them, or to give them a gift. If somebody is, uh, if we want them to do something for us, not that we deserve, we know that it's going to cost them, we, we want them to do some help for us, we'll say, will you do me a favor? That's what we mean. Will you be gracious to me? And if the person does that, or if the person does more than you expected, you will say to them, wow, you're gracious. The idea here is that you are not getting what you have a right to. You are getting what you need because the person who is giving you grace is favoring you. That's really important. That's what the word is. Grace is not a force. It's not a substance. It's an attitude that brings about uh, the giving of favor and the favoring of someone to their good. So, in the scriptures, grace is understood as the favor or mercy of God upon us. In other words, God is for us. He is our help. He is the one who wants to bring all things together for good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. So this favor, this grace that God is giving us is unearned. You don't do something in order to get grace. Now this is critical. Because it's given, it becomes the basis of our salvation. That we are saved by grace. We are saved by God's favor. We are not saved by our behavior and our actions in that sense. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I want to give you the first place where grace is mentioned. And it's mentioned first in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. In the midst of the corruption of man... And God deciding that he's done with mankind in the sense that he's going to wipe them off of his creation. Uh, The scripture says these words in verse 8 of chapter 6. Well, let me start with 7 because I'm going to pick it up at 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. 
And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. In other words, I created man to take care of the animals. I'm going to take the whole uh, batch and remove them. For I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The King James says, Noah found grace. It's this notion that in the midst of all of this, what mankind deserves is to be removed permanently, but God is going to favor Noah and his household and in doing that, bring salvation to mankind. It's not something earned. It's not something that says Noah was better than everyone else. It simply means that God placed His favor, His grace upon Noah. And then gave Noah instructions that Noah would trust God in what God was going to do. And obey God, ultimately bringing out the salvation of his family. And the blessing to all mankind. So, grace is not a New Testament doctrine. It's an Old Testament doctrine. And it's a doctrine immediately tied to redemption and salvation. I want you to look at Numbers chapter 6. Again, a passage that you are familiar with. Numbers chapter 6, uh, verse 22 to 27. The Lord said, uh, speak, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, in other words, to the priesthood, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you. And give you peace. Now there's two operative words there. One is grace. The Lord look at you. And be gracious towards you. When he sees you. And secondly. May he then lift up his face upon you. And give you shalom. Peace. Wholeness. Grace. And peace. Now. This becomes. The basis of the entire blessing of the people of God beginning with Israel and carried on to the Christians in the New Testament in Philippians 1, 2 and in other passages Paul uses a shorter form where he simply says grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That notion of grace and peace which is the ironic blessing which is the uh, the favor of God. God's favor be upon you and His peace be with you. What, a, what an incredible thing. Now, I, I've talked about this not being conditional. Grace is not conditional in its beginning. But grace can be enhanced. Uh, it can, you can grow in grace... And in knowledge. And that is found in the book of James chapter 4. 
James gives us an interesting uh, understanding in this text. James 4, verse 6. He says in verse 5, Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God gave us his spirit not to to get away from us, but to connect to us. And he gives a greater grace. So grace is given initially favor, unconditional, and then... The growing in grace, the greater grace, comes based on an attitude. And James tells us what that attitude is. In verse 6, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the key. If we humble ourselves before God, He grants us the greater grace. If we become arrogant before God, God, why aren't you helping me? Why don't you do this? I deserve this. I don't deserve that. You know, I'm I'm too important. That arrogance, God distances himself from. Now, James is quoting a psalm here. He's quoting Psalm 138. I'm not going to make you go to a million verses, but we've got a few more to go to. So, um, in James chapter, I mean, Psalm 138. I find it really important when one of the New Testament writers quotes the uh, Psalms or or the Torah or the Prophets. It's really important to go back and look at what they're quoting. In most cases, they are not quoting a word to pull it out of context. They're assuming that you know the context of that statement. So let me read this psalm to you. It's only eight verses. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praise to you before the gods. I will bow down towards you, towards your holy temple, and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. You have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with the strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. They will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty. He knows from afar. You see the context? God is great. God is wonderful. The Lord is full of mercy and loving kindness. And the humble before the Lord praise Him. And the Lord, even though He is high and exalted, He reaches down to the humble. But He knows the arrogant from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works 
of your hands. God, we are made by you. We are nothing but breathing dirt. And you are the creator. If we humble ourselves before you, you are near us. If we rise up with arrogance and pride and ego, you distance yourself from it. God almost says, oh, you can handle it? I'll let you. Right? But when we say, Lord, without you I can't do anything, he says to us, I'm right here. Before you call, I will answer. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Sometimes we think we can do life on our own. Every time I've tried to do it, it's been a disaster. Now, I want to give you one more picture of grace, and I can't talk about grace without this picture. It's, it's not a picture of grace to say, okay, here comes grace, and now grace is completed. We, we've just completed the text where Paul finds out that God's grace is sufficient and His power is perfected in our weakness. Those things are connected. The t- passage I'm talking about is in Second Samuel chapter 12. Again, it's a story that you know well uh, because it is the story of David. When the Lord has told him through the prophet uh, Nathan that the child of Bathsheba and David is going to die because David has been, uh, he's violated his neighbor's marriage and then he's had the man killed after trying to cover it up. And this man, after God's own heart, ends up being, uh, I mean, 1 Samuel, that's not going to work. It's got to be 2 Samuel. This man, after God's own heart, uh, ultimately will humble himself before God in prayer with Psalm 51. Uh, But God is going to take the child away. And so in verse 15 of this chapter, it says, So Nathan went to his house after telling David what would happen. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and he would not eat food with them. So David is focused totally on intercession for this child whom God says, I'm going to take. Verse 18, then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, look, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen to us. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He might do himself harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to the servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Almost can see David doing the mourner's cottage. Then he came to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. When the servant said to him, 
What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. Grace is not what we deserve. It's what we need. And David knew that God's grace was so great that even the punishment that he'd been given, God might turn from that punishment. Now God didn't. But David knew God's heart of grace. Knowing God's heart of grace is foundational to our discipleship. Now Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Talk about faith next week. And that salvation and that grace and that faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And it's not of works lest anyone should boast. Because we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has foreordained that we should walk in them. Now this salvation by grace has opened up the door to two terrible doctrines. One is a legalism that says the grace is only uh, to get you started and then... You must mature and grow and develop by your obedience. And if you don't, your salvation is gone. That extreme has almost been eradicated in our culture. And the other extreme has come. That grace is all you need. And since grace will save you, text doesn't say grace will save you, says your salvation is by grace, by favor of God, through faith. I'll talk about that next week. Not of works. In other words, the grace and the favor of God is not based on our performance, but based on our faith. But that doesn't mean that there's no place for performance, because faith without works is dead being alone. So the struggle is, what is this relationship between grace and faith and works? And that's what gets many of us uh, messed up. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Paul talking about God's grace to Israel. Even when it looks like no one's obeying him. And no one trusts him. And no one's saved. God says to Elijah, I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he says... In the, verse 5, in the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's favored choice, His gracious choice. 
If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's important to understand that if works brings about salvation in any sense, then there is no grace present. Salvation is not by grace through works, but by grace through faith unto works. That's a very different dynamic. So, the other extreme doctrine, the one that is permeating American Christians, is the doctrine of, it's all grace. And I don't even have to have much faith, I just have to say the magic words, and then I'm in the grace camp, and the grace camp covers it all, and I can live any way I want, and God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient for the difficulties of life, as you're fading through them, God's grace is not sufficient for you to sin willfully, intentionally, and see how far you can stretch grace. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. And I want us to look at that chapter in its entirety. I'll try to comment as little as possible and let Paul do the works. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? No. We increase grace by humbling ourselves to the Lord. And if you're humble before the Lord, you're not intentional about sinning. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, what is the beginning part of discipleship? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul's talking about spiritual baptism, but it's manifest by water baptism in that context. So he says, that imagery there is that baptized... We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too might walk, that means behave, in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." When this salvation is completed and our bodies are raised from the dead, we will be fully like He is. And sin will be no more. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, and the life He lives, He lives to God. Now He gives that theological statement so that He can give us an understanding. He says, even so... Consider yourselves, reckon, act as if, think about it from this perspective, that you are dead to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, I want you to catch this, because that, that thing is quoted all the time out of context. Paul's saying, you have died. You used to have a master. That master was sin. And he reigned over you. And he told you what to do. And you worshipped him by giving your members of your body to that. And living in that context as the way you lived. And you have been killed in that context. Buried with Christ. And raised now to obey God and to follow God. And to present your body a living sacrifice to him. So you're not supposed to still be living this way. The body's going to still pull you that way. The passions are going to pull you that way. The world's going to pull you that way. The devil's going to pull you that way. But you've got to remind yourself, I don't belong to him anymore. I belong to him. I'm not walking the path of death and sin. I'm walking the path of life and righteousness. And so I'm turning... I'm going to die daily, Paul says, and walk in the ways of the Lord. Now he goes on and says, in this context, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? No way! May it never be! Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, notice that, from the heart, to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and you became freed from sins, and now you're a servant or a slave of righteousness. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Just as you presented your members to slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, resulting in you being made holy, your sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. The benefit then that derived from the things which you are now ashamed, the outcome of those things is death. But having now been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in holiness and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, grace given, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, really important. This is not a in the room, out of the room thing. It's a pathway. The pathway of our life before was we did what our bodies wanted to do. We did what our passions wanted to do. We did what the world wanted to do. And we said, yeah, I'm going there. And then we have died to that and we're now on the path of life. And as we go to the path of life, we have to yield ourselves to God. Now the problem is our body doesn't want to do that. 
Our passions doesn't want to do that. The world doesn't want us to do that. And Lord knows the devil doesn't want us to do that. I'll talk about temptations later in the series. But the idea is, Paul's saying you need to know that when you were baptized and you came up out of that water, you had changed directions. Instead of the direction of the world, the flesh, and the devil leading to death, we call that path sin, you have entered on the pathway of righteousness. Now, there's two righteousnesses in the Bible. Okay? There's a righteousness of faith and a righteousness of obedience. I don't think I have to tell you, but the righteousness of obedience doesn't work very well. Because we are still in this flesh. And so even though we want to do what's right, we struggle to do what's right. And that's why grace is so important. If you believe that God is just waiting for you to mess up. Just waiting for you to mess up again. And then he's going to get you. You will do one of two things. One of three things. One, you'll just give up and go back on the other way. Two, you'll be paralyzed. Afraid to do anything for fear you'll do it wrong. And some of us had parents, we know what that's like. You just, they, they're asking you, what are you going to do? I don't, I don't want to. I don't know what's right. The third thing is, you're going to find out what looks good to them, and you're going to do it, but not from the heart. It's not from the heart. It's just an appearance. But if you know that your Father loves you, cares about you, wants good things for you. He's for you. He's not against you. And He's wanting you to grow in grace and in knowledge. And He wants you to try. And you start to try. And you don't do it well. And He says, keep doing. You can get there. And you do it. And He encourages you. And He gives you grace that allows you to struggle so that you ultimately do get it. And then when you are obedient, He says... That pleases me. What a difference. That's why discipleship must begin with an understanding of grace. Most people that I counsel, they have a very bad understanding of grace. And they can't figure out this relationship of grace to faith and to works. Salvation is by grace. For some reason, unknown to us, God has favored us to allow us to recognize the gloriousness of the gospel and to believe it. I believe it. And that grace of God now says, okay, my child, trust me. Not obey me. Trust me. Do you trust me? I don't know. Well, look at my character. Look at my history. Look at the way I've cared for others. Do you trust me? Maybe a little. Take a step. How do I step? 
try to obey me. Well, that's not quite right. Take it up, try it, right? That begins the process. Grace, faith, trust, and then a struggle to obey that becomes more and more presenting us. So our faith righteousness is the pathway that Paul is talking about. And ultimately, it will bring about our sanctification and our obedience righteousness that Paul also talks about. But they can't be reversed. Now, Paul knows that the law shows up what we can't do. Not that the law is sin, but it says, don't do this, and then our body wants to do it all, right? So the idea of trusting God and saying, I'm going to obey you, not because you'll get me. I'm going to obey you because this is the right way to walk. I don't quite understand, but I'll grow in this. I'll learn to do this. Is a child growing towards the image of their father. So discipleship begins with baptism. And we're no longer to present ourselves to sin in violation of the commandments. We now walk first in trust so that ultimately our obedience will come from the heart, the inner man. And what's the key to that? A humble heart. God, I don't know how to walk. Here's my word. Trust me and obey. That old hymn, trust and obey. For there's no other way. Right? That's, that's what this... It's not trust and forget obedience. And it's certainly not obey without trust. It is grace and knowing that you're accepted. Knowing that God is for you. And that He will not let you fail in this process. You'll struggle in the process. You'll fall down in the process. You'll get confused. You'll even at times mess it up big time. But it won't disqualify you from the process when you get up and turn to Him and say, Lord, I trust you, help thou mine unbelief, and start struggling towards Him again. He will draw near us when we draw to Him in humbleness. And humbleness is the attitude that gives the greater grace. We don't get greater grace by performance. And His grace is sufficient for our struggle. But when we humble ourselves... We have a greater grace. Now, a child knowing that they are fully accepted can struggle with obedience and discipline without fear of rejection. Not a fear that I won't be their kid anymore. Just got to work through this problem. I want to please my father in all that he asks me. For a convert, the convert has to move from self-reliance to understanding the grace of God. A lot of converts don't really understand the grace of God. That grace gives forgiveness and it gives mercy and now allows the convert to grow in grace and in knowledge, not to continue in their sin, but to turn in their sin and struggle with presenting themselves in righteousness to God. And for the remedial believer, 
the one who's just been confused by it all along. The struggle with assurance, they struggle with assurance because they don't have a foundation of grace. They have a fear of not being accepted. They have a fear of man. They have a fear of the church. They have a fear of, of, of God's judgment on them. And they're too sinful. And it haunts them. So they try performing to be accepted. But it's a fake performance. And they can't keep it up. And they know inside they're a different person. And they just lose it. But if they have acceptance by grace. And it becomes foundational to their struggle. They will be able to bear real fruit. That grows over time. Because they have built up an appropriate faith. So grace is the sub-foundation for the building. Jesus said, if the building's not built on solid ground, it, it won't make it. Grace has to be the foundation of all that we do in this faith. We have to teach that to our children. They have to experience that in our relationship to them. We have to experience grace in the relationship we have with each other so that we can experience it together with God and then we're free to struggle. We're free to be vulnerable. We're free to be humble because judgment isn't going to come. Grace is going to come. Judgment is given to the intentional sinner who rebels and runs away. But to the one who is struggling, grace is given to encourage them to move forward. It's the taproot of that tree. It gives stability to that tree. As a, a tree doesn't start by growing up above the ground. It starts by growing down and getting its footing. And then it grows. And then it matures. And then the fruit shows up. The fruit doesn't show up at the first. If you've got a new believer and they've got the fruit of the Spirit... That fruit is plastic because it has not come out of the struggle of grace and the struggle of faith and the struggle of obedience that comes with time as we grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord. Now next week we're going to look at faith, hope, and love and their relationship to grace and ultimately to lordship in that context. So let's pray. Father,